My guest today is the Vice President of Sales for EMEA at Tech Target, and here's some of the things his colleagues say about him. He's an extremely effective sales leader. He's highly professional, extremely sharp, a shrewd business partner. Most importantly, he's a great guy to work with. A brilliant, bright, quick learner, and charming. He takes ownership and is not afraid to face the challenges ahead. And finally, he's just a top bloke. Jat Hare, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Paul. And uh, yeah, some very generous adjectives as well. I hope I uh, can live up to at least 5% of them. Tell me, Jad, uh, I know you're, you're in London at the moment. Where did you grow up? And uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so not, not too far away, to be honest with you. Just um, about an hour north of London um, in a small town in Hertfordshire called Letchworth Garden City. For any history buffs, it's the first garden city in the world. Very green place. Um, based around Ebenezer Howard's methodology of trying to create a green-esque environment. So lots of fields, lots of playing spaces, very country, horses not far, um, walking distance from where I grew up. So a lot of time spent outdoors, uh, playing lots of football in the parks with friends. So yeah, quite uh, not quite the city uh, lifestyle I'm used to now, but, uh, but it was a, a lovely place to grow up. And the early years going to school, was that also idyllic in terms of just having spaces to play and not having the the commutes that you get in the city? I'm just curious what that was like. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was, you know, from, from a school perspective, I was quite fortunate. I went to, to a, um, a private school to start with and, um, and I can only say I had such a happy childhood, you know, in terms of, you know, like I said, always being outside, always playing, always playing sports and parents signing up to lots of clubs and stuff as well and um, a great education at a great school with a lot of um, teachers who I still consider very positive influences over my my career and my success now as well. And when you said sports did you play any to uh, a, a kind of a top level? Uh, I wouldn't say top level I, I consider myself a, a, a good footballer and I played to a good standard I've played against uh, some players who've been playing professionally you probably would have heard of um, a bit more than my name so I've got a few claims of aim like that that I can uh, I can sit back on but uh, but yeah I've always loved my football and still continue to try and play it ended up playing last night and let's just say the the knees aren't what they used to be Paul I was uh, limping out of uh, bed and down the stairs this morning so uh, yeah the struggles are real being in my uh, mid to late 30s now but but still enjoy getting out there that's a pivotal moment in your life Mm-hmm. It is. I've been there. I know what it's like. And you that wake up so. and you thought, mm, yeah, there's something, something feels different about this. Yeah. And when the body quite can't quite do what the mind wants it to, it can also be a, a bit of a challenge. Yeah. You can see it in your yeah. head, but getting there sometimes a bit, a bit trickier on the legs. When you were younger, going to school, was sales something that was ever on the horizon? Or was there any clues in your life back then that might have pointed to a career in sales? Honestly, probably not. Um, growing up, I mean, like most kids, the the dream, I think, soon went from astronaut to footballer. Um, astronaut, I don't think, was really too feasible given my, my terrible fear of heights, so I don't know where that came from. But, um, yeah, obviously wanted to be a bit of footballer growing up and then for the longest time thought I'd go into, like, journalism. Um, then I think I was always quite strong mathematically. So it was sort of almost like, you know, it was always anticipated that I'd go into like something like accounting and finance. But then I remember doing work experience at 16 and I got the probably the one of the worst work experience reports I've ever seen where it was like, I think they could tell how bored I was and just sitting in front of um, spreadsheets all day. And they were just like, I don't think accounting, Jack's a bright lad, but I don't think accountancy and finance is in his future. So that quickly derailed that career. Um, but I suppose I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial sense, Paul, in the fact that, you know, I'd, I'd commonly, uh, I suppose, be hustling with my uh, my brother in terms of like selling things on the school playground, sticker swapping, all the all the kind of stuff that kids usually get up to. And um, mm. I'd always had a sense that, you know, I always had quite, I was told from a young age, I'd have a good personality for sales, even if I didn't necessarily see it as a, a career I'd potentially go into at the start. But mm you know, um, ended up here. And like I said, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it since. And uh, 
fortunate to still be in it. How did you even break that to your parents? They had such high hopes for you of being good at maths and then you had to break the news soon that you're going into sales. I know. Well, it was quite funny, really. My dad's like um, historically a, a strong mathematician who's, you know, went did computer science and set his own, you know, tech company over the years. And then my brother got an A star in maths early. So the maths part was always like almost forced upon me even doing like economics at uni was... Um, you know, it was largely due to that, but, you know, it really wasn't for me. But I, th I think they've always been quite supportive of my choices. And I think, yeah. you know, I suppose, you know, I've always I've always been a, a bit of an older head on a, a young pair of shoulders. And I think when I was definitely looking around at careers, I, I first started looking at recruitment because my father had a lot of contacts in the IT industry. So I was like, okay, well, I can leverage that and try and turn that into some success for me. And then when I started mm -hmm. that, I, I wouldn't say I, I enjoyed the fundamental principles of recruitment, but... I like the buzz of sales. I like that thrill of winning deals and, and, and really, you know, I liked the opportunity to be positioning products to senior decision makers. And I think that's really where I started to really, you know, fall in love with the craft and, and learn it a lot more um, in the tech media side. Are you the eldest child in your family? Youngest. So I've got one older brother. Um, he's probably one for your podcast, Paul. He's a, he's a man of many, wears many hats and, um, you know, quite quite a skilled salesperson in his own right as well. Yeah. You mentioned your father went to start his own business. Mm -hmm. The entrepreneurial bent then, it, you didn't lick it off a rock. There's, there's, there must have been something there. Yeah, there is. And I think, you know, I'd, I'd probably look at my father as being one of the key drivers to, to why I've been pretty successful in life. Well, I think, you know, like, like most fathers, I mean, he was, he'd always push me really hard. But, you know, I always remember when I was young, I'd come back, be really excited, being like, I got 97% on my, my exam, Dad. Have a look at this. His first answer would be to me, it would be like, what were the three you got wrong? It would never be praising me for the 97, which, again, can sound pretty brutal, Paul, right? But, you know, I take some of those, you know, and I, I probably was a bit downbeat as a child, but ultimately it led me to be successful today. And it's sort of, you know, I'm always looking at self-improvement. I look back at some of that and realise, you know, I'm my competitive drive and my want to continually improve comes from i think the way yeah. i was raised and, and similar football perspective when you had six seven year olds you know just running after the ball playing football just running everywhere i was always the one being told to stay in my position and you know so i was always always had that kind of guidance um mm. coming from him which again pretty hard as a swallow as a kid but ultimately as you get older you, you learn the lessons and you realize and you know, some mm. some of them are definitely passing on to my own uh, my own son mm. as well um, when he's of age. Yeah. Maybe he's brutal about it. There's something in that though, because I have a, a kid who's like that would be getting 97, 98, and you just know she'd be obsessing over the the missing two percent. And it's almost like the, the motivation is is not it, it's not said. I, I would often say it to her, and and where did the two percent go? <laughs> and it, it partly in jest, but also partly, you know, that's what she was thinking. Mm -hmm. And you know that the 98% doesn't matter to her, but it's, it's, it's almost how you say it. It's like, it's, it's, it's almost, there's a, there's an undertone of, of jest about it as well, that it, it's okay. It's, it's almost said in a jovial way. Whereas with other kids, I wouldn't do that because they, they would take it to heart. So, yeah. Maybe it was just his way of, he, he knew that you could take it. Yeah, no, I think so. Spur you on. Yeah, I think so. And I think he, yeah, I think that that's a fair assumption as well. But I think from knowing my mind as well, I'm always the type who'd be procrastinating over, you know, the one pass I didn't make correctly in a football match. Or like you said, the one question I got wrong on the, on the book or, you know, picking apart my sales call and oh, I could have got that question in there earlier on in the mm. fact. And like I still to this day do that, so it probably is the best way to sort of motivate me because it's pretty much how I'm geared and how my mind yeah. has worked, I suppose. Yeah, and it's good because it reinforces an important lesson that yeah, it's good to celebrate what you've done well, mm -hmm. but in order to learn, it's always okay. What could be better? What could be better? What could be better? Yeah, it's always builds, builds in that reflexive. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's. It sounds like he's somebody who knows how to motivate people. Um. I'm curious to know what you what traits of his you've inherited now as a leader and as a parent, perhaps. Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I think from from a perspective 
of a parent, like I'm saying, is, you know, I think that competitive drive and that competitive edge is definitely something I want to, you know, instill in my in my child. I mean, pr probably it was a little bit further in my household. It was like, you know, we weren't ever told to celebrate second place. You know, you take off your medal if you lose in the final. You don't you don't wear your runners up medal. You didn't enter the competition for number two. You know, it was all, all of these kind of lessons, which, again, you know, I, I instill and I, I truly believe in. I think if you go out to set, you know, do your best and be the best you can be. But if you set out to win something, you don't win. It's not it's not a full achievement, right? And use that yeah. motivation to come back. And how do I use that to win next time, right? And that's yeah. that's always and have it as a reminder of what you've done, but don't don't celebrate it. Use it as a drive to get to where you need to go. Um, so I definitely say I've inherited his competitive um, side as well. And I'm probably not painting him out to be the most compassionate man, but also his compassion is um, is something that I've always, you know, really enjoyed. He's, he's always been someone I can go to and talk to and a very good listener. Yeah. And I've always prided myself on that in my career as well, working with, you know, a lot of junior salespeople as well. I, I don't like to be the, you know, the loudest voice or the most dominant voice in the room. But I like to sort yeah. of listen and hear and, and take on board what they're telling me and, and actually understand their problems as opposed to, preaching at people because i think you learn the most when you can actually you know use your ears to mouth and the ratio they're supposed to be in yeah you're uh, of the millennial generation and mm -hmm. it's often said that one of the characteristics of millennials is that they grow up with everybody gets a medal for participation you don't come across that way at all uh, i'm wondering if that's really a myth or is it just more of how you were uh encouraged and supported and motivated yeah yeah i hear what you're saying i've definitely seen some some traits and some in some millennials where that that definitely is the case i was definitely raised of of the whole it's mm. always important like like i said you know i'm not i'm not sitting here saying i was the best at everything i've done but it was always strive to get to the best you can be mm. and, and make sure you leave everything out there and you know don't celebrate mediocrity make sure mm. you're pushing to be the best you can be and like i said that mm. came through from you know playing pool with my dad and my brother in the pub or you know even just playing football in our back garden to you know test results to quizzes in the house who could answer first it was always quite a competitive environment in my house which again i i really enjoyed actually it's something i'm still probably a bit of a bad loser when i was younger so i'd probably be the one storming off if i'd lose the the races to my brother who had a really early growth spurt but ultimately i think um i definitely enjoyed that that kind of upbringing of you know always pushing yourself mm. to, to the maximum mm. yeah that's really important as well as particularly and I I, <laughs> I I i fully understand that bad loser thing but what it does is it, it actually teaches you how to lose and i don't know that we we learn that enough we're, we're taught maybe how to win or we go through the process and we know what it's like, but actually learning how to lose and lose with grace. And, and, but more, I think it was more importantly is lose without losing yourself. Mm -hmm. I think it's really, really important. And, uh, so that, that, that comp, that friendly, competitive, supportive environment, I think it's hugely important. So tell me, I'm, I want to move on a bit from this. Um, the, I want to understand more about your, your, transition into sales mm -hmm. when you went away from that more kind of academic background studying maths and and so on in school to yeah selling yeah like, like Profession I said, professionally yeah so like i said i ended up going into it recruitment as my first sort of drive into sales i think like i'd gone to all of these like assessment days and excelled and had lots of job opportunities on the table straight away so i was i was quite fortunate and i've, I've always seemed to do quite well on interviews as a whole mm. um but actually i think my first real life application of work you know i'd by no means say i was you know a glowing success i, I definitely did struggle it was um you know I, I definitely as i mentioned with recruitment i wouldn't say it was necessarily the most for me i know a lot i've got a lot of friends who are still in recruitment who have been very successful and do very well i think I found particularly tough to deal with was the fact that you could sit there and do your job perfectly and an external factor such as distance they'd have to travel for a commute would become the key factors why they didn't take a job that you spent you know the last three four weeks doing everything you could in every stage perfectly so that whole element of losing control of the sales cycle was something which 
I really didn't enjoy in sort of the amount of external factors that could, could prohibit your, your success. So that was sort of what I really didn't like. But what I really did like was the atmosphere. I mean, it was quite a, um, yeah, I won't, I won't go and name the company, Paul, but it was quite an interesting atmosphere where it was like um, very old school selling, you know, even in the training, it was, you know, get your seat back when you've made a certain amount of phone calls. It was, you know, that things sounds like, like a boiler room stuff. A little bit, yeah. When there was a lull on the sales floor, you know, there'd be Barocca and Red Bulls brought to your desk, you know, kind of to get numbers up. Very um, 80s style uh, American sales force. But equally, like, some really good lessons you learn, right? I was around some mm. really, really good people and um, and my uh, my manager at the time, a gentleman named David Roach, I learned so much from. I think one of the things I loved, Paul, was like, he could join a phone call and he had this tone of voice, right, where... People just respected and, and listened, and it was an authority. And it's something which I just watch him and go, how can I achieve that? And it's something which hopefully I feel might achieve now, but I was just in awe of because it was just something that was just, he'd mastered his craft at it. He was just very, you know, an, assur- an assurance in his voice that came from his experience and, and what he was doing. And I used to watch him on calls. He was passively listening as I was doing my work to try and pick up on stuff. So I definitely feel I learned a lot of valuable lessons and worked with a lot of smart people. Mm. Would I say I was, you know, that was the most successful point in my career? Absolutely not. I made some deals and got the got the bug for sales, which was great. Um, but then when I made the transition into technology media, where I've sort of, you know, stayed for the last 14 years, that's when I've really sort of, you know, grown to love not only obviously the industry, but, but sales as a whole, because... I think when you have more of a tangible product that you can actually go to people and sell and convince them. And, you know, I think when we, when I was sort of picking up like digital media, digital marketing, it was in a, in the time where it was still a, a print dominant industry. So mm. coming with quite a new age solution that was different from the norm and having to change behaviors was something mm. I really relished. Um, mm. that, that thought process of, you know, you've been doing things a set way for a number of years, you need to migrate and this will be the future. And actually, being able to show, you know, help people on that path was, was something I really, really enjoyed and where I think I really got the taste for sales. Mm. Tell me one thing, when you, when you compare sales cultures of where you started out and mm. what sales culture is like today in most organizations, what one thing would you say was good that we had that maybe we've lost and one thing, you know, good that we've gained that we didn't have before? Yeah, I think I think the the thing that we've lost, I think, a little bit is that is that notion that it, it takes time to build a career, right? And I think I think that that's in particular sales career that I think that's lost. I, I I've got the fortune of working with a lot of bright young people who come out of university and embark on their sales careers, and I've had a lot of chance to work with some really really smart people. But I think definitely what what's coming out more and more now is that whole. I want to be a CEO in, inside of four or five years. Like, you know, as you know, as well as I do, Paul, a career is based upon, you know, 20, 30, you know, 40 years, right? It's not a, a five-year tendency. And I think sometimes there's that, now there's that real urgency that I need to be here tomorrow when they haven't developed the skill set in order to be there. And we've all been in situations where we think we're, we're ahead of where we need to be, myself included, right? And the worst thing you can be is, caught out and, and have a, a knowledge gap or be out of your depth in a, in a, in a place that you don't have the answers to. Um, so I think, I think that that's definitely been something I've seen as a, a change. Um, but, you know, I think the, the positives that I, I've seen today is, you know, definitely sort of the embracing of technology, like, you know, how to leverage data in, in sales conversations has definitely been something which has stood out a lot, a lot more. I think when I first started sales, it was, you know, you had to be the personality, you had to be almost the used car salesman type to really make your point. Now I think, you know, you don't necessarily need to be an extrovert to do well in sales. Mm. You can still be an introvert as long as you're able to make a point and back it up with data and facts and sources, you can actually still be effective. And I think the new generation definitely embraced that. And I've been really impressed by, you know, how they'll actually leverage data and insights in order to back up their points as opposed to trying to win a deal through charisma or personality, like I think was definitely more mm. of the case when I, when I first came in into, into the industry. Mm. Who inspires you? 
So lots of people, I suppose, like I said, my, my father definitely is one um, I've always looked up to and seen how he came from having very little in, in a house that he grew up in where, you know, they wouldn't have cared if he went to school or not, or if he would have tried or not, and still to come through education, to build his own company, to be successful, to put houses over our heads, to put his kids through private school and, you know, to continue to excel in what he's done. I've been, you know, it's very hard not to look at, at my father. But I, I always think, you know, and personally, I, as, as it's probably come through already, Paul, I'm a you know, big sports enthusiast as well, football being my main sport, but I'm always inspired by people at the top of their, their sports. I was absolutely fascinated by the Michael Jordan documentary. Um, mm. I'm not sure if you saw it, Paul. The Last Dance, do you see that? No, I didn't. Def- definitely one to watch. And it's, okay. I, I love watching the drive of people mm. at the top of their sport and what drives them. That that gives me a big kick. That That's what inspires me, is really trying to understand the mechanics about what made them successful. What, what makes a Michael Jordan who is going on the court with all of these people who are unbelievable athletes in their own right, what makes him that extra level up, right? And, and I take, and I look at, you know, things like Cristiano Ronaldo in the sport, in the football arena, you know, people like Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray um, Leonard mm. in the boxing era. And I love hearing these people speak. And these are the kind of people that really, really inspire me because I like to understand the mechanics and their journey, mm. and what they've done in, on their journey through self-improvement to become mm. the best version of themselves. And I think that's, mm. that's really where I take a lot of my, my inspiration. Have you come across a, spir- a, a successful sports personality yet that wasn't driven by some form of, I'm going to say negative emotion. I probably should just clarify that a little bit. Some maybe chip on their shoulder. I need to prove somebody. It could have been a teacher in school who said they'd never, you know, they'd never be successful. Or it could be somebody who, I don't know. I remember, I think it was Thierry Henry talked about his father who kept pushing and pushing and pushing him. Or Tiger Woods was another one. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering that, that there's a fire. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, it can come from different places, but it's a fire. It's not yeah. the money. It's not the fame. I think you might get that in celebrity culture. It's something drawing them into it. But I, in sport, but you have probably studied a, a lot more in terms of sports personalities. And I'm just curious to know, have you come across one yet that wa- wasn't highly driven to stay on the, the, the fields for two hours after everybody else would had gone to to practice penalties or free kicks or, or on the basketball court? Have you come across anybody who didn't have an internal fire? No, honest answer is no, Paul. I think that's the commonality you see when you when you see all of these. It's that mm. it's the extra hours they're willing to put in, the sacrifice, the the lessons or the negativity they got as a kid that they actually channel to get them through the harder points where they have to mm. push themselves. I don't remember Muhammad Ali only used to count the sit ups he did from the point it hurt. He would never count from zero, right? And it's little things like that where you just sit and you go, "Wow, that's." Uh, a completely different mindset, you know, the, yeah. the Thierry Henry thing. God, I, I I watched that and I just literally heard my my father's voice when he was at um, Claire Fontaine, the French Academy, and he'd, he'd score three goals and his dad would just walk off annoyed with him because there was like two opportunities they'd missed in the game, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, you definitely see it. I, I think that's yeah. the sort of commonality that comes out a lot of those documents. Like, I probably yeah. couldn't tell you one who's reached the top who hasn't had to put that kind yeah. of sacrifice in or gone through that negativity in order to have a fire that, that creates. Is it Eric, is, do I have the name right, Eric Bristow, Darts? Darts, yeah. I remember reading an article about him saying that every night, he had a dartboard in the back of his bedroom door and he would not go to bed until he, he had three bullseye in a row. I, I, I'm saying three bullseye, it was, it was some sequence that yep. was hard to achieve and that he would have to start all over again. Um, yeah, perhaps it's not three, but whatever it was, it was something that it just forced him to stick with it. It was the old adage that said, uh, what's this? Um, Amateurs practice until they get it right. Professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and it, that reminded me of that. And so here's my here's where I was going with the question is, is that also then true in sales that 
it, that the, the best, the A players, the ones who succeed every year, despite the market, despite what they're selling, they're going to succeed that they also are ones that are not driven by the, the, the gongs, the rewards, but by some sort of fire. And then my final part of it, I guess, is can you or do we uh, screen for that when hiring? And if so, how? No, so, so two very, very interesting questions. I'd say absolutely yes. Like the, the salespeople I've seen succeed the most were the ones who'd, who'd put the extra hours in, would do the hard work, would spend time watching back their own sales call outside of working hours so they can understand how to best their craft. You know, common thing I always prided myself on was like, you know, I had Monday to Friday where I could do calling, but then I'd also be delaying delivery of emails to, you know, the Middle East contacts who are going to work on Sunday. So while all mm. my while all my peers and my competitors are going, you know, leaving the, the work on on Friday, I was doing the same, but I'd already put in 40 emails that were being delayed to deliver to Middle East or Israel contact so I could be extending the amount of people I could reach in a week, right? So yes. all these other little things that, you know, it, like I said, it can be very small margins. I've worked with exceptionally talented people who haven't had the work ethic and it doesn't matter how good they are on a sales call if they're only booking one or two sales calls a week, right? Mm. You know they'll always lose out to the person who's going to book five or six sales calls because there is a numbers game element to sales, right? It's, um, you know, as, as, as much as, uh, you know, the quote is, I think, hard work only beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And, and it's something which I think is is, is very true. Um, and I think when hiring, to, to be brutally honest, Paul, that, that's our biggest driver, right? The first thing I'll look at is the hunger, the hunger in the person, mm. which is, it's hard to find because you know everyone can give you answers and really polish things about their career and you don't really know until they're on the sales floor for you or or even until they're behind their numbers right to see how how good the character is and what they're willing to do when you know i've seen a lot of people who are amazing sellers when they're at 150 percent to goal for their year right but it's when the sellers are 60 70 percent to their goal what are they doing to dig in in order to get there is when i think you get the true measure of of how good they are because I'm still yet to meet a sales professional who's been 150% to goal each year, every year, right? It's when the downtime mm. comes, what are they willing to do to go that extra step? So that's definitely what, what I, I look for is is that hunger. And I always try and ask for examples of, I don't, I don't want to hear about your best year, tell me about your worst year and, and how you actually mm. went about trying to actually rectify that. And, you know, what do you do differently? If I was to ask, mm. You know, Paul, about you, what would he say? It stands you up compared to other salespeople he's worked with. Because I really want to try and get that understanding about what the drive is of the individual. Because I think, you know, you can teach them how to pitch. You can teach them best practices, how to follow up calls, email best practices, and how to build cadences. There's, there's a lot of fundamentals that I think can be taught. Mm. But that drive is the bit that, you know, you really it really is instilled. And, you know, that is the... Mm. Is the crucial success between well failure and success when, mm. when hiring. Mm. I want to talk to you about your transition from individual contributor to into sales leadership because you strike me as somebody again who wants to be in control. I say in control, be accountable for mm -hmm. your own targets and you'll work mm. hard at them. But now now you have to reach your targets through other people and you don't have the same amount of control. I'm curious to know what that felt like to, to realize that at first and then how you how you adapted to it yeah no it's it's uh, it's definitely a challenge Paul I'm not gonna lie to you I think you know like you said from having your own number and controlling your own destiny and you know large in sales I believe your output contributes to your success right and then when that when that sort of mechanism is turned on its head and you're relying on other people who you know, some have got that work ethic, some don't. It becomes a trickier thing to master. But I think, you know, what I, I really tried to do and tried to enjoy was like, find the bits where I could really help the, the people in my team. Find the areas, mm. instead of focusing on where am I losing control and, you know, how am I going to try and do this? It's it's understanding the individuals, I think, has been the most sort of important thing I threw myself into, right? How can I improve, in, how can I build a model for the team that's going to be successful based upon 
my learnings and, and what I did well? And then how do I get to actually know the individuals on the team, understand their strengths and their weaknesses, and how I can actually plug in to be impactful, not only to help them in terms of reach their numbers, but also to improve them as sales professionals over the years as well. So mm. I try and adopt that sort of joint methodology in order to carry out success as opposed to thinking about, okay, now I've lost control of this. How do I, that's my way of almost regaining control is building that understanding and developing a framework that's ultimately going to carry out success mm. for my team. And the in, in life, work or otherwise, what's given you the greatest sense of accomplishment? I think I, I generally, weirdly, honestly, it's, I, I like seeing other people doing really well. Um, it, it sounds strange for someone who's been so, so keen on doing well myself, but I think like I was always one of these people like, well, I, well, I enjoy management where it's like you said, outside of my control. And it was always a bit of a, I'll give it a go and see, see what I like. But then I actually really enjoyed seeing actually how people actually grew and became successful. I think that definitely gives me the most pride now when you can sort of pick people up and you can see, and it, it's not something you see over a day-to-day basis, Paul, either. It's not something which I can turn around and go, there's a particular mm. point in time I saw them change. But like, when you actually look back, like for example, we hire a lot of grads and we put them on the traditional sales development rep route into like field account executives. And when you actually, you know, we, we've got tools like Gong where we'll go and listen to calls. And when you actually hear, you know, how they're actually putting together really compelling arguments. And like you said, the way they're leveraging data for something that you might have shown them or you had another member of the team showing a salesman and seeing how they're actually progressing and almost those light bulb moments when you're seeing they get it, they understand it, they're doing mm. it. And like they now have gone from a, a time suck to a very safe pair of hands who's now really progressing on their own journey. I think that that gives me the most satisfaction to sort of see it and how they articulate mm. arguments is is the bit that I, I really get most um, pride out of, I suppose. So in terms of things that, that you've done, experiences that you've had, what are you most proud of? Um, what am I most proud of? That's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the thing I'd probably say to that, Paul, is I... I think at times in my life, I've had a really, really bad work-life balance where I think I'd probably have put work further ahead of, of where it should be in my list of priorities. And, and one thing I actually did, as I, I actually remember, is every time I go on a, a plane, I'll, I'll always pick up like a Harvard Business Review book. They always do these books and they're always available mm. in the airport shops. And I never even really finish any of them. I'll pick something up and I'll read a few pages or be between my nap or just... And I remember one I picked up and it was it was really interesting, actually. And it was a it was a gentleman who'd been um, pretty successful in life. But what he basically wrote a book about was he was saying that the most successful people around him um, in business weren't the most successful people he actually saw in life. And the reason why that was, was that he knew CEOs who had absolutely no relationships with their children or who had failed relationships and their success in, in the business world had a catastrophic effect on their success in their personal lives. And what he talks about was doing this really simple exercise where he takes a sheet of A4 paper, splits it in half, writes on the left-hand side of the page all of the, the things, if time wasn't a construct, where he'd love to spend most of his time doing. And on the right-hand side, where you actually spend most of your time in, in the week, right? And don't get me wrong, Paul, there's always going to be, work's always going to be higher than seeing your sure. friends, right? But you can quickly see when you do this, this exercise about how big an imbalance you've got. And I think one of the things I suppose I'm most proud of is I've always gone back to the exercise and tried to sort of work on that balance in life because, mm. you know, it's great here saying, oh, I've won this accolade or sales leader of the year. I've done all these great things. But if you don't have the balanced personal life to show for it, then then what's the point, right? And I think I've really prided myself on, you know, when I get into work, I hustle. I'm all about how do I actually be the best version of myself and the best I can be um, as a salesperson and as a sales leader. But then in my personal life, it's how can I be there for my friends? How can I make sure I've got time to, you know, take my little one to, you know, play football or take him swimming um, and spend time with my wife and go and take her out for dinner and, and still maintain that balance. So I think that's the thing. I, I probably still don't have the perfect balance, Paul, but the mm. thing I've been most 
proud of is the fact that I haven't I've managed to be successful in work and be successful as I consider it in in my personal life as well without mm. one or two of them you know um, having a, having a, a, a bad balance. Mm. Sounds to me what you're saying is that success to you is about getting the the balance as mm-hmm. as right as possible. That it's not one or the other. There's not one thing, but it's it's the integration of the two. Um, if you were financially independent in the morning, meaning you did not have to work at all. In fact, you're not allowed. You can't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, what would you do with your time? I've thought about this when it comes to like retirement and stuff. I think mm. I'd have to be involved in some form of, of social setting. Like, you know, even with the pandemic, like I got a lot, I was, I was very blessed in the fact that I had a, you know, my first child was born during the pandemic. So I actually got to spend a lot more time with than I probably would have done to be in the office. But I'm, I'm someone who thrives, loves being in, loves being a part of the team and socializing and interacting with people. Just that whole potential cutoff, I don't think I could do of just, you know, sitting at home doing nothing or just watching tv i i, I drive myself crazy and i think i drive my wife mm. crazy as well mm. um i think what i'd love to do would be but i've always had had a sense of giving back to the community as well and, and i'd love to do stuff around like you know coaching kids football or um you know even stuff like going out to you know my mother's always talked about projects like going back to india and setting up schools and stuff i'd definitely love to be a part of that and then maybe in things where I'd use my brain to like, like a non-exec director on stuff, not not about the money, but just going and mm. getting part of quite cool projects and trying to use yeah. sort of my strategic thinking in order to try and um, mm. help businesses or organizations or institutions. Um, mm. Maybe one of those few things, but I, I'm definitely not someone who could just sit on a golf course ball and just hit balls and be, you know, a bit of a yeah. hermit. I have to be around people. And I think I definitely want to do something where I could... Uh, add some yeah. help and, and give in some way. I'm curious, you're, is it a little girl you have? A little boy, a little boy, Dylan. Little boy, Dylan, lovely name. Um, when Dil- Dylan was born during, <laughs> we're going to have to go up with a better term than during COVID or during the pandemic. <laughs> it seems to define a certain period in history now. Um, I presume you weren't allowed in to when your wife was given birth. I'm, so I was allowed in after a, a certain amount of time. So only okay. for real, I suppose, the business yeah. end of the boat. Um, yeah, I just but, often wonder what that was like because I can't imagine it that that for for both your wife and for you, at such an important somebody is saying no, you you, you can't come in. Um, I, I, how did you get through that? Because that's and, and by the way, I know it's also even worse for people who had people who were dying and they couldn't yeah, be with course. them in their last hours. That's far worse. I get it. I'm just wondering how you how you deal with that, or is it just look? It is what it is, and you got to get on with it. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 incredibly tough because obviously, you know, your wife's in there going through, you know, what's the unknown, right, for her, mm. for, for us, and to not be there to support you, do feel very powerless and. And like I said, for someone who likes to be in control of a lot of situations, it can be can be very, very frustrating, right? Not being being mm. told. But equally, it's like like you're saying that you have to look at the bigger picture. And, you know, it's obviously for the safety of the staff and the safety of the people limiting their contact with the outside world. So, you know, I put my rational hat on, like in order for my baby and other babies at the same time to be delivered successfully, you know, if it means limiting the amount of people who are in so they can do their job healthily and, at at least risk then you have to put your your own i suppose selfish wants to one side and do what's what's best but yeah definitely difficult but you know please it all went well and god you you know just you truly see what superhero your uh your wife is and how what you've been doing is so trivial compared to uh to like moments like that you know doing lead generation doesn't seem to, to compare to to you know pushing out a new life and carrying a new life for nine months so yeah yeah my wife's the real star and i think to uh compared to me to be pretty honest um i wanted to ask you if you were a minister for education uh, whoever that is now <laughs> i i can't keep up what's going on in the uk at the moment told. in terms of who steps in and who steps out and it's all going to change again i'm sure pretty soon 
Uh, is there a subject that you would make mandatory on the secondary uh, school system? I, I've honestly always said it. Like, I, I think, I hate to say it because it's been like a coached answer, but I'd honestly say sales, Paul. Like, you know, the fact that it, it, it isn't even on the, the university syllabus and there's so many intricacies to it is, it, it blows my mind simply because like, you know, as you'd have seen, like I sent you here, it's like, if I was to sort of go back to my shoes now um, on my sort of first year in, in work, I'd be sitting there looking at myself going, well, what are you doing? Like, you've got absolutely no clue. You're in above your head. You don't know what you're doing. You know, it takes so long to actually learn all the stages, all the processes, you know, all the fundamentals that ultimately make you successful. And it is, it is a journey. But I think the fact that most people are thrown into it as opposed to, mm. you know, actually learned it and studied it and, and understand nuances, I think, would give them such an edge. So it's it's definitely not only a, a skill I think would happen. And the other answer I'd definitely say is like, definitely some more practical, some more practical things. Like, I think the education system is too structured around people with good memories and, and for people to, who are book mm. smart. I think, you know, there's a lot of smart people who probably don't have the best memories, but ultimately would do well, do far better in practical exercises or being thrown into situations because of the way their brain works and i think the education system i think lets down those individuals actually it's funny you should say that because some of the smartest salespeople i know and they're smart because they're smart but they didn't do well in school because they were dyslexic and the system didn't support them and mm -hmm. made them feel and, and perhaps this is also partly where some of their drive comes from is that the school system made them feel less than and, but they knew in their heart and they knew that that this that they were smart and but the the school system made them feel inadequate and in order to prove the school wrong they were highly successful in business not just sales but in business in general um it's interesting i think i think paul an interesting part of that is like two of the smartest salespeople i've worked with and i've taken across some other organizations ne never went to university right mm. and and have done phenomenally well. And I've had interviews where I've been super excited where I've seen like, you know, A's throughout and first class degrees from top universities. And then you meet them and they're scared of their own shadow, right? They've learned how to answer questions, regurgitate information, but can't apply yeah. to a real life scenario when they're thrown into deep water, really sort of struggle with, you know, yeah. how do I find a solution? Yeah. In terms of all the lessons you've learned from all the mistakes you've made, what's been your hmm. biggest lesson? Lots of mistakes. Um, you know, I think, I, I think, like I say, like understanding the individual. I think definitely at the start, I would, when I first came into particularly the sales leadership role, I definitely was like, right, here's some frameworks. And I was trying to build the same accountability that I had on myself, which hmm. isn't you know, isn't the same. And I always say, like, I'll never ask anyone to do anything that I, I didn't put on myself. Right? I'll always pride myself on that mantra. But I think sometimes to ask people to sort of be to your standards sometimes can be difficult. You can want them to get there. But I think understanding individuals is definitely something I've improved on. I remember when I first um, started in management, I I used to call people out in my team meetings about, show me the last, pull, pull open the email, show me the last thing you sent. And you get, you get the crickets and the reactions. And I see your face, your face, your body born, the exact same reactions yeah. that I got from my team. And part of it was I wanted a reaction, right? Because I, I could see there was some fundamental faults. But ultimately, over time, you realize that, you know, that might motivate 20% of the team. That might have that might mm. motivated me as, as an individual. But that's mm. going to alienate another 80%. So it's yeah. understanding the individuals. And like we said, what, what makes them tick? and how I can actually, you know, work with them more consultatively to get the best out of them as individuals. Because I think sometimes when you look at things too structurally, uh, overall as a team, um, you can definitely have messages lost because you need to understand mm. the people and the, the different mm. personalities. Okay. A uh, couple of final questions before we finish up, Jad. Um, let's play Desert Island for a moment. You're going to be marooned on a desert island. You don't know whether you're ever going to be rescued. What one thing would you bring with you and why? What one thing? Um, 
Very good question. I think I'd take a guitar. Reason being, Paul, I'm terribly not musical. I don't think I've played an instrument okay. since I, I was disastrous on the recorder at my junior school. Um, but I'd like to challenge myself and try and teach myself something. That or a golf club. I'm also a terrible golfer, Paul, as well. So yeah. maybe maybe something where I could actually develop and learn and, and do something where I can uh, work go. over time. Your, the old self-improvement gene kicks in, doesn't it? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I would, would, I would take, kick Paul? your... Well, I w first of all, I wouldn't kick yourself over the recorder. The recorder is a goddamn awful <laughs> instrument, and nobody should be made listen to that. Uh, what would I take? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and, and uh, nobody's asked me, um, so I'm thinking about it because the answers I get tend to fall into one of two categories. They tend to be something very practical, like mm -hmm. a, a flint so I can start a fire, for example, or it'll be maybe a football, something I can entertain myself with. Mm -hmm. And I think yours falls in probably into the latter category, but it's not just, you know, meaningless banging a football against the wall. It's also, uh, it's, it's learning something that you, you feel like you, 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 you always wanted the time, but haven't had the time to develop. And now mm -hmm. you have. So that's an interesting one as well. It's, it, it, it bridges both. Um, what would I take? I'd say I thought it's a difficult one. Uh, I love music. I love listening to music. I, I play piano a little bit, but certainly not well. Um, and like yourself, I know I need to spend a lot more time on it. Maybe this is the opportunity. Um, I, I like to take pictures, but I think of it, I don't know what this desert island is like. It might be picturesque. It might not be. So I don't know if that's a, it's a do you know what? I would probably obsess. Here's what happened to me. I was, we were going uh, to Malta there about two months ago for five days, my wife and I, and I, couldn't decide which, I have a few cameras, right? And, and I couldn't decide which one to take, so I took them all and regretted it, obviously, because then I was only postponing the, the angst over which one to pick up and go out with, because you can't carry them all. And uh, so that would probably, I'm, I'm stalling for time, actually, because I don't know the answer. <laughs> I really don't. Um, you know what? Something with that would play music, like a, a, a radio or see, you know, a, a never ending MP3 player, something like that. Probably show my age called an MP3 player, but uh, yeah. um, no, I probably show my age if I said I'd take my collection of 45s with me because <laughs> I have a few of them as well. But uh, yeah, interesting. Okay. And uh, then the last question, Jat, is this your house is burning down, your family are safe, any pets are safe, your phone and your computer all safe and you have time to run back in and rescue one item, what would it be? My signed Roberto Baggio Juventus jersey. Ooh, that's an interesting one. You know what? I haven't heard that name in quite a while. And I often use him as an example of what happens when we allow the emotion of an occasion to get to us. I remember watching that World Cup final I was in. Actually, Here's, here's an interesting top and tail, because you mentioned Michael Jordan at the top of this uh, uh, chat. I was in Michael Jordan's bar in Chicago in 1994. Now, he wasn't there, right? But the bar was half Brazilian, half Italians for the final. And it was, what an atmosphere. But I'll always remember Baggio, where you would bank your house on him to bury the ball, uh, given an open goal like that. What does he do? Hoofs it over the bar, because of because the emotion of the occasion, the attachment to oh, what could go wrong? What if I mess up? And the, cl clouding his something that, as I said, you you literally could bank your house on him scoring right in front of goal. Yeah. What a player! And uh, anybody who doesn't know what we're who we're talking about should just look him up on on, on YouTube. And you've got a signed jersey. Wow. How did you, do you mind me asking you in the couple of minutes we have left, how you managed to get a signed jersey? I, I, I wish I had some big emotional story about how I managed to get that. I've actually eBay. Got <laughs> over, over a long period of time from a lot of collection sites that my wife is now nursing me because our whole staircase is full of Maradona, Baggio, Cruyff. All, all my heroes are yeah. up on the wall. But I do have one funny story actually relates to Roberto Badger that I'll share with you, Paul. So basically, yeah. I've got an uncle who um, is from my mother's side who now lives and works in a restaurant in Lake Garda that he owns, a um, beautiful part of the world. And he um, 
we we got to meet him later on during my university days and you know we were like oh we're actually going to be over in brescia not far from como where baggio finished his career to watch um his final season and he was like oh you know but we he knew we're juventus fans didn't really make the connection that we love baggio because we watched juventus against brescia so he's tried to sort us out with some signed jerseys so he comes back to the uk and he's like guys look i've got your shirts and we're like oh really appreciate that uncle you know we'd already had sort of the shirts so we we're like you know appreciate the presents so we're like okay open them up he's like no open them up and like we open them up and it's like a signed alessandro del piero shirt for me and a signed zambrotta shirt for my brother you know and it's all written out to us and like this is amazing uncle like how have mm. you managed to find this and he was like well my fish dealer um in lake garda is actually one of the most rich people and he rents out all the houses to the footballers so he spoke to his fish guy who he got to speak to roberto baggio to get us shirts so baggio was pretty much doing leg work for us to get shirts wow. and we would have been happy just with baggio fine so, yeah yeah <laughs> you know, helped us to add a couple of shirts to our collection that aren't his own is quite a funny yeah. story in its own right. Even he's my childhood hero which is um so his yeah, fingerprints so. are on the jerseys that yeah exactly. the signatures yeah. of yeah. The somewhere on. Okay. On them somewhere. yeah so actually i have one very quick question which i've never yes. asked anybody before but i gotta ask you what one sports personality then would you love to past or present sit down and have dinner with diego maradona for the for the stories and entertainment yeah. value. Like Badger's my hero. I'd love to sit down and talk to Badger. Yeah. I could talk to him all day long. But in terms of a character, uh, yeah. probably Diego Maradona, or I'd probably even say Tyson Fury in there as well. Yeah. Just for yeah. a pure character and the stories you'd get, Paul, would be... Yeah. I, I, I guess, yeah, you're a bigger person than I am because after the hand of God, we had a similar incident with Thierry Henry who... I know, that's why I was surprised you brought him up, actually, to be honest with you. <laughs> I know, because mm, he's he's not too far from the back of my uh, evil brain. Uh, and uh, so, very final question. I know I probably said that three times. Um, how, when your time on this planet is done and there's a book written in 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 honor of your life, what would you like the title of it to be? That's a tough one. The title. Um... I have one, by the way, for you, but I'd love to hear yours first. <laughs> understanding okay I'd have yeah it's a better one than mine I had he what shoots he scores I had it. no 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 it was for you he shoots he scores uh, for me yeah. Um, yeah um, it's a tough one he did his best yeah did his best yeah that would be it I think you can't ask any more than that uh, yeah he did his best Dad here, thank you so much for being my guest today on the podcast. It's been an absolute joy and pleasure. Thank you so much. No, the pleasure has been mine, Paul. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it.